evil tricks and schemes designed to get our neighbor's goods for ourselves, whether by force or means that appear legitimate, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In addition, God forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. What does God require of you in this commandment? That I do whatever I can and may for my neighbor's good, that I treat others as I would like them to treat me, and that I work faithfully so that I may help the needy in their hardship. Amen. That's God's word summarized. Let's go to the Lord now and ask for the Spirit's help to understand and apply His word. Almighty and everlasting God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that though we are sinners who have been conceived and born in sin and are unable of ourselves to do any good, that nevertheless we have repented of our sins and we seek Your grace to help us in our remaining weakness. Through the teaching of your word, which we confess with the church throughout the ages, satisfy our hunger and quench our thirst with your refreshing truth, that we with all our hearts may love and serve you with our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the one and only true God who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Well, the eighth commandment is... You shall not steal. And once again, just to orient us, since we've been in this little series in the Catechism that takes us through the commandments for the last number of weeks here, we have in the two tables of the commandments, commandments one through four, especially having to do with our worship and our love and our service of God. No other gods before you, no graven images. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And remember the Sabbath day. This especially orients us vertically toward God. And that's the first table of the law. We have also the second table of the law. Commandments 5 through 10. And this orients us toward love for neighbor. As Christ has summarized this law. You shall love the Lord your God. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we come to these commandments. And the 8th commandment in particular today we recognize that this is a great expression of our love for our fellow man and woman. That we do not steal is part of our divine worship toward God, and it is commanded of us in order to love our neighbors. You shall not steal. In the earliest books of the Bible, we find the simple and concrete concept of property. This is simply when something belongs to someone. That's what property is. It belongs to them. And in Scripture, we ground ourselves with this, in this concept by recognizing first and foremost that God is the ultimate owner of all things. Psalm 24 opens by saying, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So all that you see belongs to God. It is His property. And with this basic understanding, it becomes much clearer now for us to appreciate that the same God who owns everything, 
shares generously. He shares generously. He's made all things. It belongs to him. And not only has she shared all things in the original creation before sin even came into this world, but he continues to share lavishly his great gifts with sinners who do not deserve it and who could not produce it for themselves apart from his goodness. He created the world. He made it fruitful. He has told humankind to enjoy it, to use it responsibly, to take it up in love for both God and for neighbor. Whatever we have is a gift from the Lord. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything you have has come the further back you go. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? Where did it come from? And the further back you go, the buck always stops with God. He created all things. He gives us all things. And the task of every Christian is to respond to such generosity, not only by not stealing, but by sharing God's gifts. And tonight we're going to explore that first by just following the, uh, the basic outline of the catechism which is to see what this commandment forbids, what it requires, and then what it reminds us of. First, then, what the Eighth Commandment forbids. Because we know basically what it means to steal, but stealing comes in many forms. You can be a thief in a variety of ways, big and obvious ways, and subtle ways. And so to walk in genuine repentance, to walk a Spirit-filled life means that we get back to the basics and we realize that as the Spirit renews us within, we ought to more and more hate the idea of taking what does not belong to us. Genuine repentance means that we are, we're not quick to say, well, you know, I didn't, I didn't commit Grand Theft Auto this week, so I'm good to go on the Eighth Commandment. But we go beyond, we go beyond just the basic commandment and recognize the way that Scripture applies it and expounds upon it. And we must look to the heart of the matter and be ready to turn away from sins as they are revealed to us. First, we recognize that stealing includes, as question answer 110 says it, outright theft and, and robbery. Outright theft and robbery. There are people who enjoy stealing. There's a whole genre of literature and cinema that's all devoted to organized crime. They could get the same goods through legitimate means, but they'd rather take it by force or by tricking people or paying off law enforcement or however you want to do it. It's actually more fun to steal than to just get it in a legitimate way. And the Bible knows of such people. The Bible is not naive. It is not pie in the sky. It tells us the truth about ourselves. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 17 describes it like this. It says, Stolen water is sweet. Bread that is eaten in secret is pleasant. There's a thrill that can be involved with taking what doesn't belong to you. Water, which is really just kind of bland, basic, becomes sweet when you take it and you're not supposed to. We are all bent towards sin in particular ways. And some people are bent in this particular way, towards a kind of thrill to take what does not belong to them. And brothers and sisters, if you relate to this idea on that level of desire, if your affections are oriented in this way, 
you relate to that idea that taking someone else's property makes it more enjoyable, and especially if you are acting on that, it is time to cut it out. And it, it was always time to cut it out. It's theft. And it is not just your neighbor's property, it's God's property. And so when it is outright and obvious, then treat it as obvious in your heart and turn away from this sin. Harder to recognize, though, is that there are more subtle forms of stealing. So that if we're not stealing people's cars or breaking into their homes, and yet we're still guilty of it, many times we're blind to the fact that we're still guilty of it. This is what the Catechism calls theft in God's sight. You know, the different virtues and vices of the Ten Commandments, Jesus tells us to recognize this on the heart level. So we saw this with adultery in the Seventh Commandment. Uh, We see it with anger and murder. Jesus says that the heart's orientation is what leads to your guilt before God when it comes to the commandments. So, you know, unjust anger towards your brother is murder. And lust is a kind of adultery. And there are heart types of theft. But God sees and God knows. Some theft is subtle because it happens through threats of violence that just make it go unnoticed to others. Catechism says that this is when it happens by force. Somebody is forced to give something that actually rightfully belongs to them and they have to unjustly give it up. Some theft is subtle because it's just hard to see without looking more deeply into it. Because it's achieved through trickery. We saw examples of this in our readings from the law and the prophets. The Old Testament is filled with this idea of false weights and measurements. Here's how one Bible historian explains this. We're thinking here about ancient societies. So when we, we hear about weights and measurements, sometimes that's foreign to us. Here's what one historian helps us to recognize. He says, commerce in a society without coined money is dependent on standard weights and measurements. Stone and metal weights marked with specific symbols designating weight values. Okay, so you have a stone, you have particular weights, and the the size of them and the the weight of them becomes standardized in a just government, whether it's a local tribe or something bigger than that. And there's an an agreement in that society that these things weigh such and such, they measure such and such, and that's how you know in a, a trade society, in a bargaining society, whether or not you are being taken So there's a standardization in the ancient world when it comes to weights and measures. But a thief could find ways to trick other traders by using heavier weight for buying and lighter weight for selling. And make it look like it's the same size weight that's been marked and designated in other ways. So this was common enough. And we see in the ancient world, not just in the law of Moses, but in the law of the nations around, everybody recognized that's Wrong, because the law of God is actually written on the conscience. We, we all know better, believer and unbeliever alike. There are many ways, many other ways that stealing happens in a, a, southern, a subtle way. 
There's a, a big list that is given to us there in question and answer 110. And all of these can take their own modern forms. We may not use weights in exactly the same way as ancient societies did, but we are still able to trick people into giving what they actually didn't agree to give or to give what they didn't realize they were giving. So, for instance, maybe in writing up a contract, you're tempted to make the verbiage confusing on purpose because you, want, you don't want the person that you're doing business with to recognize that they're giving up more than they thought they were going to. You know, confusing verbiage, and it's made that way on purpose. It's impenetrable, and you actually know better because you're going to get something in, the, uh, in, in taking advantage of your neighbor. That's something more from the business world, but a little, maybe a little more close to home. You're selling something online. You're, you're trying to get rid of something in your home. You find a way to make it look like it's in better condition than it actually is so that you'll get more, more money than what this thing is obviously worth. And what this person uh, thought, than what this person thought that they were going to get. When you're selling these kinds of things. We, we could go on and on. We make, we're in transactional relationships. We have these kinds of things. We trade things with people. You know, we, uh, we have somebody over and then they feel like they've got to pay it back. That's kind of the nature of our relationships with many people. But particularly when the, the trading of goods and money is involved, we must search our hearts to recognize whether these subtle forms of theft, theft in God's sight, is actually taking place. Loved ones taking our neighbor's goods, property, or money by tricking them isn't shrewdness. Shrewdness is a virtue. That's all over the Bible. Jesus calls upon us to be shrewd. But that's not shrewdness. It's theft. It's theft. The Lord hates such trickery. He demands that his people be honest in how we conduct business and how we exchange our goods. How many large public scandals in churches and in parachurch organizations would be avoided if we stuck to the good commandments of God? That's what the Eighth Commandment forbids. Outright theft and robbery and these more subtle forms as well. He also, the, the, the Catechism also speaks of greed and pointless squandering of gifts. We're not diving into those tonight, but very relevant for our day as well. Secondly, we see now, we, we look at the negative side of the ledger, so to speak, what the commandment forbids. You shall not steal in these particular ways. But our, our principle of interpretation that the church has handed down to us is that where a negative is in the command, a positive is implied. The Bible confirms this for us many times. So we don't just ask, well, what does this forbid me to do? And then how close can I get you know, to doing what I actually want to do without doing the bad thing? Oh, God, the law is much better and higher than that. We also ask, what does it require of me? And to sum it up, what the Eighth Commandment requires is for us to share God's gifts. We share God's gifts. Anything that we have, land, home, vehicle, possessions, money, whatever we have, has been given to us from Him who already owns all things. He uses means to give it to us. He gives us skills to have a job, to earn money, to, in that sense, earn these things. And they truly are our possessions. 
But they're gods first, and they remain gods. It properly all belongs to him. And brothers and sisters, that's the inescapable scenario that we find ourselves in. There's no getting around this. You'd have to get out of God's universe. The inescapable scenario is that God provides for all. He provides for believers and unbelievers alike. And all of these things are good gifts from a very gracious and generous God. And in such a situation, how could we respond with anything but the grateful sharing of our gifts with others? Martin Luther is is, uh, thought to have said, God doesn't need your good gifts, your neighbor does. God is pleased by your your good works and your gifts, and he doesn't need them. He's already got it all. It belongs to him. He made it all. Your neighbor needs your good gifts. Your neighbor is the one who needs you to share with them, to invite them into your lives and the sharing of your gifts and your property and so forth. We do this most naturally and, and faithfully in our own homes when we just provide for those that we love. That's a big deal in the scriptures. But Jesus commands us to go further. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, For the Father makes His Son, His Son, by the way, He made it, His Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? In other words, if God, who is not obligated to give us anything, shares his life-giving sun and rain to both believers and non-believers. We must do the same. Otherwise, how can we call ourselves Christians? Jesus says, you're no better than tax collectors if you're not doing this. This is what the Gentiles do. If you're only loving and giving to those who love you and give back to you in return, you are not doing anything more than what pagans do. What those who hate Christ still do. And so Jesus calls us to a high standard indeed, and one that makes us uncomfortable, and yet here it remains in God's Word. We must love our neighbors. We give to those who love us, and we give to those who hate us, and in particular, we give to the poor. You'll notice there in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus isn't even arguing about whether or not we should give to the poor. He just assumes it. When you give to the needy, do it like this. Because he recognizes that sons of the Father will give to those who are in need. Why? Because God has given to us when we cannot provide for ourselves. Now, brothers and sisters, there are endless ways that this command can be applied. This positive end of the command can be applied. But because of our particular experiences together as a young congregation, I want to highlight one particular way that we can and I think are applying this. And I'm highlighting this one for three reasons. Here's the application. It is hospitality. If you've been with us for any amount of time, we've tooted this horn many times in the past, and we will continue to because it's commanded and because I think Western Christians are are increasingly bad at practicing it. So we are trying to, with the law of God, wake ourselves up to this 
great practice in the Christian tradition and in the commandments of God. Three reasons why I want to highlight this one. One, because it accomplishes the goal. Hospitality accomplishes the goal of sharing with friends, haters, and the poor. Hospitality has a wide scope to it. Secondly, because I want to encourage us as a congregation to continue on in doing it. I have seen as your pastor wild and wonderful ways that you've opened up your homes and your lives and and your goods to this particular church community and to our greater community. And it's a great encouragement, and I want to press us on to continue to do this. Paul tells us not to grow weary in doing good. Hospitality is hard for sinners to do. It's hard. So press on and don't grow weary in doing this great good. The third reason I'm highlighting this one is because the author of our catechism, Zacharias or Sinus, highlights it himself. As he's talking about this section of the catechism, he pinpoints hospitality as one of the great applications of the commandment to share. To love your neighbor as yourself. He reminds us that Christians are to love those who are not already in our circles. To love those with whom we have differences. To those who are in particular need of food and fellowship. Who need community. And so I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to press on in opening your homes in this way. And uh, if for one reason or another that is not an option for you in this season of life, which happens, then give to the Benevolence Fund of this congregation, which is new. It's a new Benevolence Fund, and that is set aside just to meet the needs of the poor in our church community and in our broader community. So hospitality. I commend it to you as one of the great ways and an all-encompassing way to take up this commandment and to say thank you to the Lord for his generosity towards us. Lastly, this evening, we come now to what the Eighth Commandment reminds us of. What does it remind us of? It reminds us of Christ's self-giving. Our reading, our final reading earlier was from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The Apostle Paul there is praising the Christians in Macedonia for their generous giving to the needs of other churches. And he says... They gave not just within their means, but beyond their means. And out of their extreme poverty, they welled up in extreme generosity. And Paul says, be like those guys in the giving of your, your uh, offerings and the meeting of the needs of your brothers and sisters. And there are, in this particular passage, 2 Corinthians 8, 1-15, through 15, there are wonderful Materials to mine there. You could plumb the depths of that passage. There's a very interesting theology and play on words going on there about God's grace and favor and giving. And there's wonderful stuff in that passage. All I want to point out here is that this passage grounds us to keep the, the Eighth Commandment in a profound way. What is it that keeps you far from stealing, whether outright theft or subtle theft? What empowers you to use your gifts for the good of others? Paul says it in verse 9. He says, For you know, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty 
you might become rich. Christ's kingship extends to every part of our life, every faculty of the body and soul, and everything that we have. And we say, well, these are kind of my things. I want to do with them what I want. And Paul says, Christ became a poor man for you. He who has forever been clothed in heavenly glory has nevertheless clothed himself in human flesh. And he was homeless. And he was treated as a stranger. And he was crucified as a criminal. The source of your love for others, dear brothers and sisters, is that Christ has loved you and given himself for you. The ultimate expression of the love of the Father is not just in the giving of this good world for us to enjoy and to share in, but in the giving of his Son. There is no greater generosity that he has shown than the giving of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. No greater act of love and of sharing, but that Jesus Christ was rich, but for your sakes became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich and share with those who have need. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you build your church on the foundation of the doctrine of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And so we pray that you would bless our congregation to grow in their teaching. If others, we have heard the true doctrine proclaimed to us this evening, by your great blessing, may it be preserved among us and propagated through us by our lips and our lives to the glory of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.